Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. It's midsummer here in the capital region, yet thoughts of the fall and of the future are top of mind. What will school look like? Will state government be able to accomplish anything significant this session? Can we ever get back to life as we knew it pre-COVID-19? There aren't many answers yet to those questions and to many others that the pandemic has raised, but Times Union reporters are nonetheless relentlessly pursuing them. On this episode of The Eagle, we'll go over this week's top stories. The governor said, no, no, I think we've got it well in hand. Thank you very much. We'll have a look at what may be causing a surge in gun violence in Albany. It's, it's almost epidemic right now. And we'll hear from a controversial candidate whose name has been floated to take the helm of the nation's largest university system. I'm a tough guy to work for sometimes, especially when you see things going the wrong way. This is The Eagle, a Times Union podcast, a look inside our newsroom. I'm Jessica Marshall. If you're enjoying this podcast, take advantage of all the Times Union has to offer and support our efforts to bring in you award-winning journalism by becoming a Times Union member today. Go to timesunion.com slash subscribe. Welcome to The Eagle. I'm Jessica Marshall. Let's start with a look at what happened in print and online this week. I am here once again with Casey Seiler, editor of The Times Union. A lot of sobering bad news this week. Uh, let's start with the mall shooting. What happened there? Well, happily, that's all it was. It was shooting. It wasn't anybody getting shot, which is which is very good. But this happened just after four o'clock on Wednesday at Crossgates Mall. We got wind of it as a huge flock of law enforcement vehicles headed to the scene. Based on what the owner of the mall has reported, it was, as they put it, quote, known acquaintances, unquote, which means it was not at all random, which is, of course, the situation that you are always nervous about when you hear about uh, an active shooter situation. Once again, nobody hit, but just when people feel like they might have gotten over their fear of going to a mall uh, amid the pandemic, yet another more old-fashioned threat for people to worry about. But, you know, once again, this is still under investigation, but it appears that it was an isolated incident and not anything that was connected to a random act of violence. This isn't the first time 
something like this has happened at Crossgates either, right? Yeah, uh, the pretty much the only good thing about this is that there are far fewer people in Crossgates Mall right now. Not good for business, of course, but good in the sense that there was less in the way of uh, of flight of fear just because there were fewer people in the mall. Sure, and the reason for that is our next topic, which is COVID. There have been a couple of sort of updates this week about spikes that happened or that started last week, but there are some new information, correct? Yeah, the um, uh, Albany County's executive, Dan McCoy, uh, thought he could get away from doing daily coronavirus updates, but he's he's been back every day and really ringing the, the warning bell, telling people that they cannot go back to their old way of socializing, even though the number of cases has dropped. Case in point is, once again, something that I think we were talking about last week, this July 4th party on Hudson Avenue in what is known as the student ghetto in downtown Albany, where uh, if memory serves more than 35 cases are now connected to, I don't know if that counts as a super spreader event, but it, it sure sounds like it. Young people um, congregating in, uh, in unsafe proximity is, is no good. In addition to that, we've had uh, restaurants that have self-reported and closed down for um, cleaning after an employee was found to uh, have tested positive for the coronavirus that happened to the Tipsy Moose, which is a restaurant that just opened um, in our beautiful Pine Hills. Uh, my family and I got takeout there not long after they opened. It's a, it's a great spot. And you're just very sorry to hear that they, that they are now up against this challenge as well. But, you know, we're, we're going to hear about this. We're going to hear about businesses that close down, that clean themselves, that open up again. You could see this as a win in the sense that it's only one employee, and um, and as far as we know at this point, no nobody else. That that's good news if you're if you're looking for it. That's why I say to people, you're you're not going to get fined. You're not going to go to jail. Uh, we're not going to put your name up on a board and, and throw you in. It helps us stop the domino effect. It helps us stop the spread. If you come forward and you tell us what's going on and who you were exposed to, uh, these are the things that we have to worry about. And McCoy is probably going to keep up his daily pressers at this point, right? He doesn't see any reason to stop them. I think so. And of, of course, another subject around coronavirus that we'll be moving into that, that we've heard from this week is school districts that have announced their plans for opening and uh, the pushback, although very muted and really only from kind of remote quarters, to the news from some districts that students will be expected to mask up during the school year. Wendy Libertor wrote about some folks up in Saratoga County that are upset. Uh, one family, the mother said, boy, it's hard to communicate when you have a mask on. And how are young people supposed to hold on to uh, their mask all through the school day? But um, you're already seeing locally the kind of politicization of mask use that's that's at play really across the nation. Sure. And that's a good segue into some talk of uh, Capitol News this week in that one Cuomo is going to sort of make a determination on schools in the fall coming up, you know, in, in early August, I believe. But really, the top news, I think, that came out of the Capitol today was uh, his conversation with the president. What happened there? Yeah, um, uh, the governor and President Trump spoke on the subject of spiking crime rates, especially in New York City, although there have been spiking crime rates around the state, including in Albany, Syracuse, Rochester, and Buffalo. 
we of course have heard about the uh, the arrival of federal officers in Portland to deal with the protests there and the pushback that that has delivered. Local officials have said that the uh, impact of those federal officers is making the situation worse, not better. And the governor managed to do a, a fairly classic move on his part in the sense that he was able to hit down on Mayor Bill de Blasio of New York City, who the governor suggested was not doing enough to deal with spiking crime rates, while at the same time seeming very uh, accommodating and yet sort of stiff-arming the president on the president's suggestion that maybe federal forces ought to come into New York City. The governor said, no, no, I think we've got it well in hand. Thank you very much. I think if they sent in federal agents, I think it would be uh, inflammatory. I think it would be pouring gasoline on a fire. And that's the last thing we need, need in New York City. So the president said he heard me. He said he wouldn't do it. He said that we would talk if anything changed. The governor, however, at the same time, said very strongly that if the president does it precipitously, that it would result in a lawsuit, as has been um, the case in other states, including in Oregon. Also uh, in the news this week, the Albany Diocese received some new abuse claims. Can you talk more about that? Yeah, more than more than two dozen claims were added to the, um, uh, the docket uh, uh, that the Albany Diocese is facing. These are, of course, cases that were brought under the Child Victims Act, which next month will reach uh, its, its sort of one-year anniversary of going into effect, and that is the opening of the, the look-back window that uh, enables previously time-barred lawsuits about child sexual abuse to be brought. That has been extended um, by executive order by Governor Cuomo because, of course, there has been a, a slowdown or even a shutdown for a, an extended period of time due to the pandemic. There is also talk that the legislature ought to handle the extension of that look-back window rather than just do it by executive order, because if, if a defendant in one of these cases contests the legality of the extension of the look-back window and says, hey, you can't just do it by executive order, you've got to do it by um, legislative action, that that could imperil those legal actions. Anyone that's brought after the look-back window was supposed to have closed in mid-August. So um, there's probably going to be more action there. Certainly, and we'll be, we'll be watching it. Now to move on to something a little more positive, uh, there has been a new development at the University at Albany. Do you want to talk about that? Yes, the Great Danes, uh, uh, which is, of course, New Albany's uh, team name, got a new logo. And uh, their old logo, if, if, if anyone's familiar with it, was pretty much a dead ringer for Scooby-Doo, I think it's fair to say. Not, it probably just skirted the line of, of possible copyright infringement. This Great Dane is definitely a lot scarier. It has an almost, it looks like it could be the logo of, you know, like a Spetsnaz unit in Russia or something like that. But it's definitely going to be imposing for the opposing team, without a doubt. Thank you so much for the update, and we'll check back with you next time. Thanks, Jess. In the last seven months, cities across New York State have seen a significant surge in gun violence. Albany stands out in the crowd with some alarming statistics. 
Senior editor Brendan Lyons did an investigation recently of those numbers. And what could be to blame for that uptick? I want to welcome you to The Eagle. We have not had you on before, but I do want to point out that you are the host, one of the hosts of the Capcom podcast. So I wanted to give that a little bit of love, but welcome. Good to be here. In one of your latest stories, a statistic popped out at me that you that you presented that homicides in Albany up 800%. I know that statistic jumps out at you. So when you have a year like last year where you have one homicide, it goes up 800%. When you have eight, nine, and then, but the year before it was 15 homicides. So in Albany and cities like it, homicides aren't so much a measure of the violence because they're, they're year to year, they're cyclical. You've seen kind of a, a number in that range going back all the way to the 90s and the 80s, but it's the shootings, shots fired that are soaring right now. They're up 400, nearly 400% in Albany. Often they're young people. Oftentimes when you hear, oh, a 52-year-old was shot, as we had a few weeks ago, he was dropping his son off and got in a crossfire. It's generally young people who are shooting one another. A lot of times it's like, oh, I hear people say, oh, they can't shoot good. They just shot another guy in the leg. They do that on purpose. They shoot each other, and oftentimes they're not trying to kill one another. They just want to shoot each other in the leg. I don't know. In their world, I think they think attempted murder is not as serious as murder but some of them learn the hard way that you can do a lot of hard time just for shooting someone in the leg as well. But in Albany, it's, it's almost epidemic right now. And the guns that the police are seeing on the street are much better too. They are getting their hands on better guns capable of firing more rounds. Some of them are straw purchases from Vermont. They'll go over to Vermont and they know people or pay people to buy guns there legally. And then they take them from them and they find them. I think in New York just this year, I think there's like 75 Vermont guns. You know, there, there's still many more from other states. But the gun control laws are not stemming the ability of these, these folks to get weapons. And it used to be, you know, like one group, one loose-knit gang. They might share a gun or two that they hide somewhere. They call them community guns. Now... And, and also because of the pandemic because and, and because of the change in policing where police in Albany are no longer getting out of the car, stopping, asking someone for ID, confronting them. They're walking around, they say, with guns now. It used to be that they would just get their gun when they had to go do a shooting. And police are now seeing them carrying these weapons more frequently, you know, as if it's the OK Corral. Uh, you recently wrote an article, and one of the focuses was um, criticism of the raise the age element that has come into play. Can you talk a little bit about how that's affected things? Raise the age went into effect over the last two years, in 2018 and 19, and it raised the age of criminal responsibility for 16 and 17-year-olds. Now, it effectively considers you an adult no longer at age 16. Now, it's age 18. And what that meant was that a young man last year uh, and his friends went to the South End. They opened fire on a group of young men. And one of the bullets went through a daycare center wall and struck a toddler. And so that 16-year-old, when he was arrested, that meant that now his first stop is family court instead of a criminal court in Albany County. They call youth part, but it pretty much treats you as an adult. So at that point, raise the age was in effect and... I thought, okay, this is a good case. So I started tracking these four 
uh, juveniles, along with others that I, I could see coming through the system for months, watching how would Raise the Age work. And one of the things they said with Raise the Age was the, uh, the intent was we're not going to throw you in prison any longer. You come out at age 25 and you're a hardened criminal and what have we done? We haven't saved you. So they touted that there would be intervention, there would be programming, reintegration of these individuals in the community. And as I watched them go through the system, was able to talk to their mothers at one point, I saw none of that. They'll tell you about programming to get young people driver's licenses and, and employment. Those are more proactive, right? That's helping them at a young age to point them in the right direction. But what I'm not seeing and did not see was meaningful therapy programming for young men who are shooting one another. They're not being reformed. That one shooter, his mother thought he should be put away. She couldn't control him. He'd come home after hours breaking his curfew. And if she locked him out of the house, she, was, she said she was threatened with CPS, you know, that child protective services, you got to let your son in the house. And so you, you can see the corner that these families are put in when you have one who is outside the box saying, I'm a gangbanger, I'm going to live this lifestyle. The mothers can't control them and law enforcement can't control them. In his case, he wouldn't charge his ankle bracelet. He kept violating his curfew. They found him in Schenectady at three o'clock in the morning. And he went on to commit three other shootings, including a homicide in the course of 10 months. So as I said to, to some people when I started that, I didn't know what I would get. You know, I didn't go into that thinking, okay, I'm going to prove that Raise the Age doesn't work. I was kind of hoping that, you know, maybe we'd come out the other side of this and this guy's got his GED and is on his way to getting his life turned around. But it's, it's just not the case. And so, and a lot of the gun crimes in Albany, not all of them, but a lot of them are being committed by 13 to 17 year olds. Wow. And especially 13 and 14, you can't touch them in law enforcement. If they're caught with a gun, it's almost as if it never happened as far as their criminal record. So, and they're aware of this and you're seeing even older people who engage in violence, 19, 20, 21 year olds are arming the 15, 16 year olds and putting it in their head that, hey, they can't do anything to you. So you're gonna be the shooter. You know, what's the solution? Is there a solution? I think the solution is for the state legislators to realize that the program as they, as they intended it is not working. But from our perspective, if I try to get Assembly Speaker Carl Hasty on the telephone today to ask him, because he was one of the big champions of this legislation, he won't get on the phone with us. The governor's office referred us to the Division of Criminal Justice Services, which gave us a statement about how much, you know, they poured $300 million into giving counties money for programming and such. But a lot of that money will get, they had to reconfigure the juvenile detention facility because under the law now, a so-called adolescent offender who is a 17-year-old, 16-year-old maybe, they can't be housed any longer with the youngers, you know, with the 13 and 14 year olds. So a lot of the money went into just reconfiguring and restaffing those facilities. You know, again, you're not seeing intervention and a concerted effort to try to reform these individuals. And that's what the probation officers are telling me that, you know, the, the young men, they're getting rearrested in a car with guns coming back into court because they're, they're RUS, they call it, released under supervision, and, and the judges are putting them right back on the street. And the probation officer said they're laughing at them as they walk out the door. 
because they know there's nothing they can do. Wow. Because the rules have been changed too. The standards by which a judge can incarcerate an adult or a juvenile have been made so difficult now that it's almost that it has to be a last resort. They, you know, and there's terms like extraordinary circumstances in the statute that aren't clearly defined. So the judges just, just let a lot of people go. So you're going to be following this though, going forward, right? You're going to kind of keep an eye yeah, out. I am I'm trying to look at, at part two now, which is the lack of programming. And that's, that's the next part of this too, is to see. And, and, you know, it was frustrating to me as well because a lot of the, nonprofit organizations, especially New York City area, citizen advocate and such. I went to organizations that were the biggest champions of Raise the Age when it was when it was proposed and they would not respond to a request for comment when I told them the reporting we had done and what we had found, I it was startling to me that they they just didn't want to say anything about it. Well you'll keep I know you'll keep on them, right? Yes. <laughs> That's what we do. We're like houseflies. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for giving us uh, an update on all of this and, and a look into what you've been doing. Okay, Jess. After the break, the chancellor of the state's university system stepped down this month, and its future hangs in the balance. If you're enjoying this podcast, take advantage of all the Times Union has to offer and support our efforts to bring in you award-winning journalism by becoming a Times Union member today. Go to timesunion.com slash subscribe. The position of leader of the state's university system is up for grabs. The most recent SUNY Chancellor, Christina M. Johnson, stepped down this month to take a job as president of Ohio State University. She leaves behind a void in leadership within a system that many agree is in crisis. Enrollment is in decline. It's facing a projected operating loss of $400 million. It's likely to be a tough job for anyone who takes up that mantle. After Johnson announced that she would be leaving, voices close to Governor Andrew Cuomo floated the name of Jim Malatris as a potential successor. Malatris is a former top Cuomo aide He's served as president of Empire State College since 2019. But the suggestion is widely seen as a bid to expand the governor's reach. Some have questioned Malatris's qualifications to helm the nation's largest university system. And many in New York's higher ed community are calling for a nationwide search to fill the position. Times Union education reporter Rachel Silberstein took a look at Malatris's record at both SUNY's Rockefeller Institute and at Empire State College. She recently talked to him one-on-one about his vision for higher education. Let's start at the beginning. You can you talk about your transition from government to academia. So I always sort of was on both sides. Like I've always taught on the side a little bit. I was adjunct teaching at University of Albany or Hudson Valley Community College. You were always sort of straddling the line between government yeah. and academia. I thought it was important to bring, um, to combine both of those things. And even when I worked in the legislature, I was getting my PhD at the time. I was in graduate school. I was ABD at that point. Um, or even the attorney general's office or the governor's office or the campaign. It was how do you apply political science concepts, public policy concepts, and try to get stuff done in the political and public policy world. I, I argue, and I think we don't subscribe to that point of view. I think we're trying to figure out how to take what you've learned and shared knowledge and actually 
effectuate meaningful policy change. One thing I think that we heard from researchers who didn't, when you came in, I think, you know, the Rockefeller Institute had a long reputation of being nonpartisan. Obviously, there was like people talking or perceiving that like a lot of the work produced during your time there happened to align with, you know, policies that the governor was backing or, or moving forward. People's perceptions sometimes are a little different. Yes, I work for the Cuomo administration. I'm still volunteering in the Cuomo administration on the COVID response. Everybody knows where I came from. But the research is the research. And I would ask the only time, if we're being blunt, is the only time there's ever been a question of the integrity of the Institute was with the scaffolding report. And that had nothing to do with me. That was pre-me. That was the only time in the history of the Institute that they had a question about changing a report seemingly for responding to a funder's need. Mm -hmm. But let's go back though. The Institute gets most of its resources from the state government. Right. So that's been there. Rockefeller's staff created it. Norman Hurd was the budget director who then became a fellow at the Rockefeller Institute after moving state money over there. I did try to elevate the things that we worked on. And I wanted to work on things and examine things that were vexing policy issues for not just state policymakers, but federal policymakers. Opioid crisis was not a natural thing for the Institute originally. They focused on sometimes esoteric federalism issues, but you can make federalism interesting. It's an issue of federalism is marijuana policy. Federal government has a schedule one drug. State governments have been expanding that. And sometimes the federal government looks the other way. That's a really interesting concept that you can talk about federalism in a new and interesting way using modern research. We often interline with what's going on, not just with the state government, but with the federal government, because to me, that was what people were asking for to have analysis done of, not, hey, this was some sort of esoteric question that you guys are working on, and then perhaps you should do more of that. I think we were looking to modernize the Institute and do things in more impactful and meaningful ways. And then what the outcome is, is the outcome. We were out of money. So what I did is I tried to get more money from the state, which we did. We went from one, we got 1.1 million was when I started in a state appropriation. We got up to 1.8 million, which is where it sits now. Mm -hmm. And we've got the research grant piece, which I think is the lifeblood of the organization, quite frankly. We work with a lot of institutions and a lot of, uh, Carnegie is one of our major grantees on education side, Pritzker Foundation. How did you do all this? How did you justify your own $300,000 salary? I mean, Tom Gase, who was the other director, who, by the way, did not agree to talk to me, made like half that. How did you justify that outsized salary if you were trying to become, manage the fiscal problems that were well, happening? They, they didn't pay for it was the first thing. So that's the one area where they were paying for Tom's. I made an arrangement with SUNY where they, we weren't paying for it. And we went from- Who was paying your salary? SUNY was, correct? 400, so, well, I, I don't want to, I don't need to be defensive of my salary. Um, it went from, I brought it from, they started with $460,000 in outside research grants. By the time I left, it was $2 million. So that more than paid. And most of those grants were grants that I brought in and that were important for the Institute on Local Governments or Tax Policy and other things. So I would have paid for my grant process anyway. But I think bringing those resources in were really important. I, that was a major focus of mine. I'm a tough guy to work for sometimes, especially when you see things going the wrong way. I don't like to see money mismanaged. And I think money was being mismanaged at the Institute. I think they weren't making payroll. I think they were giving raises to people for whatever reason, because that just was the way it always been. And I wanted to open it up more for people, give more opportunities for students and other researchers to come in. 
And I thought that was really good. Does all of it work? You know I don't know. that you were too hard on people. You know, a lot of people say they've fought with you or you've yelled at them or assailed them with curse words and slam doors. Do you feel that? I you, don't. I know people. Are you a yeller? I'm not a yeller. I do, do people have heated conversations sometimes? Of course, especially not on other issues. You're going to talk to people who aren't happy with me for whatever reason. A person that I terminated, a person that's been referred to some agency for an investigation, whatever it is. And I can live with that. I sleep well at night. I'm a tough boss, especially when I feel tuition dollars are being mismanaged, public dollars are being mismanaged, or there's just performance issues generally. I do. And I am a tough boss on that because I think we are granted really important jobs in life. And these are really important positions. And you have to be very mindful of that. And you always have to have that in your mind. So yes, there have been people you probably talked to that are very upset with me. I don't think they slam doors and do all those things. People are now going to spin whatever tales they're going to want to spin because there's a motivation and reason for them to do it. Um, but that's, you know, that's okay. But am I a tough boss? I am a tough boss when it comes to those things for sure. As you are aware, SUNY system now is in crisis. Even your detractors, people who you clashed with or left under your leadership, say they're comforted to see you up there with Cuomo because you handle, you know, you thrive in a crisis and that's your specialty. What would you do if you were leading SUNY right now to, they're facing like a huge deficit and declining enrollments next year and nobody really knows what's happening with the hybrid online in-person campus. I think this is a moment in time where you have to be really honest about where uh, the system of higher education sits. I think the pandemic has accelerated some of the issues that have existed in higher education for a long time. Enrollment's been declining in higher education across the board for many years now, especially in traditional liberal arts colleges and residential-based programs. Um, I think there might be a saturation point. And now this just exacerbates and exposes many of those problems that are out there. What I like about Empire, which is why I, I think we have such a good team and what we've been doing here is, People have come at, they come at higher education in a different way now. It's not this, I graduate high school, I'm 18, I now go to a residential program for two or four years and then I get a master's degree and then it's a sort of a, an end, it's a static process. I think it's more dynamic now and I think people are looking for more and they're looking for more flexibility and they're looking to come back when they want to in different times. Um, and I can give you all sorts of anecdotes about an empire. You know, you have a woman 70, like Rochester, I mentioned her in my commencement piece because she's pretty awesome, Judy Lewis. Um, 75 years old, decided to come back to college. Like, you know, it's crazy, but that we give them the tools to do that. She can come and get individualized learning and do all those things. I do think, and I've been working really hard here because I think if the entire SUNY system is stronger, I think we're all better for it, even though it's not like natural in this competitive environment where everybody's fighting for students. I've kind of, I've kind of approached it the different, a different way. If you can do more volume and show more value and therefore get more enrollment up, even if it's not all yours, I think ultimately we're all better off. So we're partnering like crazy with community college. I think partnerships between among this, the, the schools are really important. I think shaving off time and money is really important. So we're doing a lot with community colleges right now. So you can come finish your community college program. You can automatically be enrolled, right? Let's make it easy for students. One SUNY school to another SUNY school. We treat these things as like, they're like these big ideas. Like, oh my God, seamless transfers. It's like SUNY students, they don't care. They're like, by the way, I'm a SUNY student. I went from Potsdam to the University of Albany. 
Um, and I got like a bazillion degrees at University of Albany. Um, but like, I wasn't like, wow, bravo. You know, I'm so glad you had a seamless trans. I, like, I'm a SUNY guy at Potsdam. I want to be a SUNY guy at Albany. I don't understand why mm -hmm. it's so, so much of an issue. Those types of collaborations now are more important than ever, not just community colleges, but even like we just did an agreement with SUNY Canton um, uh, on their business programs where now students are cross uh, registering in the middle of their experience with CAN and us, mm -hmm. and they're gonna be able to get some of this done. They're gonna be able to get an MBA for $4,000 cheaper. Now, many people aren't on board with that. Mm -hmm. They say, how dare you, it's crazy, you're losing out on revenue opportunities. But I think if you can provide more value and show more value and more flexibility building around what students' lives are now, I think we get more students. And I think that's the way. I think people are confused by our systems of education. I think K through 12, is a separate system, like it's wholly unrelated to higher education sometimes, and that confuses people. Um, even within a SUNY system or a CUNY and SUNY system or private, it confuses people. And they just want to say, I want to get a credentialing and a, a degree path to get me a job and other things. Is there anything else you want to say just to sort of capture your philosophy as a educational leader in New York? I do love Empire State College. I mean, I think this model of flexible individualized learning and doing it where you're building career career programs around students i think is the future and i do think we're at a moment in time now where we are at a crossroads where this is a really difficult situation not just for higher education but like a lot of industries out there but now is the time we need more education than than we've done in the past i think we need to get more credentialing so i think this sort of flexible innovative new way of looking at higher education and then sort of saying challenging all assumptions but taking the core which is good i mean this i mean in some ways this was like a radical idea 50 years ago um so i feel like we could either like let the moment pass and it's going to be bad like it's going to be bad right like enrollment's going to go down i think campuses are in trouble i think um the finances are just not there um and i don't think we can make those things up but we could take this opportunity and sort of like say hey Rockefeller had this really bold idea 70 years ago. Let's build a state university system all across New York State, and they all have different sort of enterprises. We have university centers and music schools and other things. But how do you now take that on scale? We have technology. We have a shrunken world and then pull it all together. I think it's an enormous opportunity for us. And I think I would love to take that opportunity and do more with it here. That's it for this week. I'm Jessica Marshall. We'll be back next week with another look inside the newsroom here at the Times Union. In the meantime, check us out on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and Instagram, or head over to timesunion.com for the latest news and features. Stay healthy out there.